Well, good morning. My name is Derek Bates. I am the RUF campus pastor at the University of Pittsburgh. And uh, it's my privilege this morning to share with you from God's Word. We are going to be in Psalm 30. When you're uh, you know, a guest preacher, you can uh, sort of talk about whatever you want to. So that's what I'm doing. We're in Psalm 30. Find that printed in your bulletin. Oh, yes, that shuffle is the sound of kids fleeing. If you have a child ages 4 to 7, they are fl- they're free to head that way. Okay, so uh, Psalm 30 printed in your bulletin and also, of course, found in your own Bibles if you prefer that, uh, that means. Uh, a little quick context for you. Uh, psalm 29, the psalmist calls the angels to give praise to the Lord. The angels to praise the Lord. And here in Psalm 30, he calls on the saints to do so. The saints. And when you think about that company together, angels and saints, praising the Lord, you may come to the conclusion, perfectly tuned hearts, perfectly tuned lips, I'm not sure they need my voice. I'm not sure I fit in this, uh, this choir of angels and saints. I'm not sure I am being invited to participate in this song because I'm not sure... I'm pretty sure I'm not an angel, and some days I'm not sure I'm a saint either. Uh, But uh, you're wrong, of course, if if you believe in the Lord Jesus. You, like David, are a saint. But you're also something else, something that David is in this text. I'm fairly sure this is true of most of you. All of us, no matter how you feel today about being an angel or a saint, you are most likely something that David is. David the psalmist writes this psalm is a high-achieving failure. And I'm, something, I'm somewhat sure that almost all of us can identify with that. And if you, if you can't, you will. You will. That's what David is. And I think that is perhaps the best means for us to realize that we need to give praise to the Lord. And that we can do so as high-achieving failures. I'm going to read Psalm 30. Feel free to follow along there in your bulletin or Bible. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you've brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you, his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the morning, but joy, excuse me, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. This is the word of the Lord. Well, 
one of the uh, disadvantages of being in a church and around the church for 10 years is uh, you're not sharing many illustrations you've told over and over. So I've certainly shared this one before. I don't know if you've heard it or not. If you have, it's a good one. You won't mind. If you've not, welcome. Um, so I, I lived in St. Louis before I lived here, and I lived there for a long time, 10 years. And uh, I think it was about 15 years ago, a friend and I were traveling from St. Louis to Nashville. A good friend of, mine, of ours was getting married. And uh, we were in some hurry because we were in the wedding. We had to be there in time on Friday night to, to make the rehearsal. We weren't, we weren't terribly concerned. We'd made this trip many times. Uh, he was from Georgia. I'd made the trip many times myself. We knew the way. We, we even had time to stop and have a leisurely lunch after a couple of hours. Uh, it was after that lunch, as we got in the car and we we're 10 miles down the road, that, that I looked up and saw so we passed under a sign, a big interstate sign that said, now entering Missouri. Now, I know it's quite possible that some of you grew up in Pittsburgh and have never left Pittsburgh. <laughs> or you're from somewhere far away from here and you know nothing about Midwestern geography. But here's how it works. St. Louis is in Missouri. <laughs> and Nashville is in Tennessee. And after four hours of driving from St. Louis to Nashville, you should not be entering Missouri. <laughs> and, uh, you know, after I saw that sign, what, what happened is nothing. For five, six, maybe ten minutes, we kept driving <laughs> in silence. Until one of us, and I can't remember if it was him or me, said, did you see that sign? Yeah, I saw that sign. <laughs> I saw it. How did this happen? How did that happen to us? How, how could we be so wrong? We both knew the way and we frequently traveled in that direction and, and there were stakes involved. We really needed to get to this wedding rehearsal. Well, uh, two things can explain our folly. One is presumption, the false security of, of the trip. We knew the way, it was okay, we weren't paying attention to the signs. And the reality is, we have been off track for hours. We were off track before we even ate lunch. And we were completely unaware. And our presumption, we weren't paying attention to anything. We knew the way, we had this. And then, this, this overwhelming pride as well that ties in, that, that would look at a road sign and say, that can't be right. <laughs> I mean, it simply, that's why we kept driving for five minutes. Like, that, that can't be right. I know how to go to, to make this trip. And they made us slow to turn around and address our error. We were going headlong, headstrong in the wrong direction. That's what we were doing. On our pride and our presumption, headlong the wrong way. And that's how we find David in our text. We find David in our text going from top to bottom and back up. He forgets how he got up top. He presumes his ongoing uh, security and success. He is going headlong, headstrong the wrong way. And that's a really easy mistake for us to make. Because we are those who are accustomed to success. We're used to it. We believe in it. We believe it's going to be ours. And we believe with our success will come security. And uh, we, we just sort of presume it's going to be the way, that that's the way it is. 
and, and we believe in ourselves. And it's easy for us, like David, to forget that our high achievement, all our success, has been completely underwritten from beginning to end by divine favor. If we've had any measure of success, any measure of brilliance, or even ambition, it's because God gave it to you. And we claim it for ourselves. And like David, we should not be surprised when occasionally we find ourselves toppling from high off the mountain of success and finding ourselves way down in the bottom, wondering, how in the world did this happen? How did failure find me? Why am I despairing? How do I get up from down here? Cast down and dismayed, and at least temporarily relieved of the delusion, it's a delusion, that I'm in control. What David finds in this text and tells us what we need to hear is that God is the helper of high-achieving failures. It's good news for all of us. It's good news for all of us. And we're going to talk about this in a couple different ways. Here are our talking points this morning. What it looks like to go headlong and headstrong the wrong way. Help for those who want and strive to never be helpless. That's a very long point. I'll say it again. Help for those who strive to never be helpless. And then lastly, let's hear that humility. Let's hear that humility. So uh, in this text, we're not going to be working so much from beginning to end, you know, sort of linearly through the text. Actually, we're sort of going to be working from, from the top to the bottom, in David's experience. When we look at what it means to go headlong, headstrong the wrong way, we, we find David up, up top on the mountain in verse 6. David enjoying the fruits of his success. His light, he was brilliant, by the way. If you didn't know, David's brilliant. Military strategist, successful general. He writes poetry that's in the highest, most successful selling book in human history. He's a poet and a general and a ruler. I mean, the dude is amazing. He's amazing. He's successful. And he is up. He's enjoying the fruits of his labors. He says, in his prosperity, I shall never be moved. Verse 7, he talks about the mountain he's on. For David, life is up, way up, from atop Jerusalem, atop Mount Zion, the anointed ruler of God's kingdom. David rules, and he looks, and he sees that things are good. And the future's bright. He's enjoying his success and the security that comes with it. And he says at the end of verse 6 there, I shall never be moved. That's assurance, friends. That's assurance. This ongoing success and security is mine. In, in the game of king of the mountain, David alone is atop, and he will never be moved, the eternal champion of king of the mountain. David, you're never going to get up there. That's where he belongs. And David's wrong. David's very wrong. But he goes from being up top to way down very quickly. It's in verse 1, right away, that we find eh, it didn't last very long. Because when verse 1, we find David being drawn up, brought up from Sheol, from the pit. 
David has fallen so far and so fast, our imagination can't plumb the depths of his experience. From the top of the mountain to the very bottom of human existence, it feels like. The best word he can come up with is is Sheol, which is pretty close to the Old Testament equivalent of hell. I mean, he is at the bottom of existence. Metaphorically, if you were to come to David and ask him, what's it been like? What happened to you? He would say something like, oh, I've been to hell and back. It was like death. That's what he says. That's how far he fell. And and he tells us uh, what probably seemed to happen as he was struck down by this life-threatening illness. He has gone headlong, descending in the wrong direction toward death, some kind of threatening illness, that his, his restoration is almost like a resurrection. That's how far he fell. And he admits, he admits in verses 6 and 7 that this is probably his fault. Probably his fault. That the cause in verse 6 is his own prideful presumption, his headstrong nature. He's forgotten, verse 7, God's favor. That God had been kind to him, face shone upon him. But when for just a moment, in chastening love and discipline, God hides his face, everything crumbles. David's forgotten that God's favor has underwritten every moment, every instance of his success, sustained it all. And when just for a moment, just temporarily, God removes his favor, the house of cards comes crumbling down, and David falls from his mountaintop of security and success and finds himself flat out on the birds of death. I'm convinced that uh, David's not alone in his ability to delude himself into thinking, I did all this. I built all this. I can keep all this. I'm, I'm fairly confident that you, like me, that we're prone to this kind of foolish, headstrong presumption And these flights of fancy where we forget that if we've been successful and we are successful, it's because God has given it to us. This kind of forgetfulness is wired into our self-centered spiritual DNA. Uh, One of the reasons I was excited about moving to Pittsburgh from St. Louis, um, besides this job, was uh, someone named Annie Dillard. We not know Annie Dillard. She's a a Pittsburgh-born writer, a brilliant one. She actually lived in Regent Square. And uh, you'll find a quote from her on the uh, inside of your bulletin under the reflections. Annie Dillard knows a lot about human nature. And and she writes in her coming-of-age book in American Childhood this about ourselves, the way we think inside of our heads. She writes, the interior life is often stupid. She has a really great way with words. Uh, You know, your internal dialogue is often stupid. Its egoism blinds it and deafens it. Its imagination spins ignorant tales, fascinated. It fancies the western wind blows on the self and that leaves fall at the feet of the self for a reason. And people are watching. You know, whether you think they're watching you in approval or watching you in disdain, you can think everyone's watching you. The reality is no one's watching you. They're all preoccupied with themselves. themselves. 
a mind risks real ignorance for the sometimes paltry prize of an imagination enriched. The trick of reason is to get the imagination to seize the actual world, the real world, if only from time to time. And the real world, friends, that most of us live in right here, if you live and work here, is a world in which we are constantly told you can do anything and everything. And for the most part, more than anywhere else in human history, it's pretty much true. But you can make your success and you can keep your success. And if you do it, if you're successful, you can keep that security and, and everything will be great. You'll be fine. This is the way to true happiness and enduring peace. Succeed and keep it. And again, more than anywhere else in human history, that's true. But it is no insulation from the real world. From the real world. And the real ignorance comes when we think that we can actually live apart from God and we forget that he's underwritten all our success. The trick of faithfulness, friends, is to seize the actual world where God's favor has underwritten all of your success. If you're smart, you should thank your parents and your teachers and the Lord. And if you're ambitious, you should be grateful that you're in a place that allows you to be ambitious. Because lots of places where you're ambitious, you go straight to the gulag. <laughs> I mean, there's so much that is, that is due in our, in our plight for success, our striving for success, that's due to the circumstances beyond us that God has enabled and he sustains. And uh, we forget that. We forget it regularly. And, and frankly, we also forget uh, how prideful we are and how much we've messed up. And, and frankly, that if we're enjoying success and in some, some measure of security, I can't speak, some measure of security, that we're probably getting better than we actually deserve. That God's mercy and grace to us in life and our circumstances is better than we deserve, actually. Well, David tells us about his folly. He tells us about his fall. And next he tells us that there's help. There's help for those who strive to never be helpless. And uh, the help that comes here is amazing. It comes quickly, and it comes completely. It comes in verse 1. David is cast down on the, on the edge of death, and he is drawn. He is healed. He is brought up. Help comes, and it comes completely. He's restored. Again, in the context of David's experience, this restoration, this is not some self-help methodology that David put himself through. No, his experience is close to death. His restoration is close to something like resurrection. He was at the bottom of human existence. There was no hope for him, and complete healing and help came to him and the Lord so quickly and so thoroughly that his mourning is turned into dancing. He says in verse 11. Now, it's possible when we are cast down in need, lost, and if you're, you know, accustomed to success, you may be thinking, I can't remember the last time that happened. Well, keep thinking, you'll remember. Uh, but when, when we desperately need some intervention, we may think, God's too busy. Or this is, this is too small a thing for him. He's got other things to do. Uh, more important things to attend to. But this helper that David has, we need to know it's the Lord, our helper. And he is near. He is close. He is at hand. It's not so clear in our text, but it's certainly clear in other texts in the Bible that 
that the Lord is close. He's near. Psalm 121 is one of your additional texts. He is your keeper, your shade on your right hand. And it doesn't matter how you feel about it in the moment. He's there. He's there with you, close by, at hand. And uh, when we're feeling helpless and in need, we, we also think, you know, like, like David could have possibly done this. You know, I, how could I be so foolish? I should know better. How could I think I did all this? How could I think I built this mountain? How could I think I sustained this mountain? I am a poor shepherd boy. I didn't get here all by myself. How could I be so stupid? And you could begin, like David, perhaps to, to beat yourself for your foolishness and wonder, there's no hope for me. I mean, seriously, the extent of my pride and foolishness is too great. And you could think, uh, and it's the same thing over and over. I keep doing this. How, when is God going to get tired of me? Run out of mercy. Just have enough. There's this uh, old Clint Eastwood film that uh, almost no one saw, unlike most of his films, called Absolute Power. And uh, it's not a remarkable movie. There's one great scene, at least. Um, he's just some sort of normal dad, except he's Clint Eastwood. And uh, in, in this one particular scene, uh, one of the bad dudes is, uh, is trying to kill his daughter. She's a witness, and uh, she's helpless in a hospital bed. And it's, it's this baddie goes to uh, inject her with uh, some end-of-game life-debilitating serum or something in a vial. Uh, Eastwood grabs him from behind and sticks a syringe in his neck. And you have this really tense but very brief conversation that goes like this. Um, Eastwood saying, uh, you crossed the line when you went after my daughter. And, and, the, and the guy simply looks at him and says, mercy. And Eastwood, this father, looks at him with this withering look of indignation and says, I'm fresh out pushes the syringe. It's this awesome, terrifying moment. Hey, the Lord has every reason to be fresh out of mercy with us. Seriously. How can you be so foolish, shepherd boy, as to think that you, you achieved this greatness and you will never fall? Did you forget who brought you to, your, to himself and who anointed you as the king and gave you success over all your enemies has been merciful to you over and over. Did you forget? Yes, I forgot. And the same is true with us. In our pride, we forget. And we may wonder, don't ever do that. Don't touch that. Um, we may wonder, is the Lord out? Has he had enough of me? Is he fresh out of mercy? But David discovers and realizes here as he pleads for mercy in verses 8 and 10, God is a God who's rich in mercy. He is never fresh out. And his favor is for a lifetime. David finds God's mercy to be rich and his help to be near. Now, I need to take a moment to talk to a certain group of folks here. And I don't necessarily have anyone in mind when I do this. But I know you're here. And it's those of you who've suffered for more than a night and a morning. That uh, unlike David who cried out and, and found quick comfort and help, you, perhaps you've cried out day after day and week after week and maybe year after year 
for help, for God's help. And you're wondering when that morning is going to come. Uh, Maybe you've been fighting depression for 6, 10, 12 years. Maybe you've been lonely for two decades. Maybe you have an illness that there is no known cure for. And you're wondering, when is this comfort you're going to speak of, this help you're speaking of, when is it going to come? And you're learning something that, that Paul talked about. And uh, in his letters to the Corinthians, that, that these light and momentary afflictions, and you're thinking, they're neither light nor momentary. But these light and momentary afflictions are preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. And if you understand what Paul's saying there, the weight of glory, the goodness of, of when he finally fixes all things will make all these sufferings seem like a small pittance. That's great. They're wonderful spiritual truths. But you still may be asking, but, but what about right now? What comfort beyond that for right now? And uh, I, don't, I, can't, I can't tell you that I know what you're going through or what it's even like to be you. The Lord's been kind to me for now that I haven't, I haven't suffered as you have suffered. Uh, before it's over, most of us will in some way. But here's what I can offer you. Here's what the scriptures offer you, that there is one who knows exactly what it's like to go through what you're going through. There is a helper close at hand, and the helper you need and the helper you have is Jesus himself. He does know what it's like to be you and what it's like to suffer. Consider this. Jesus was like David. He cried out to the Lord. But God turned his face away. Jesus, like David, but for a different reason altogether, he went headlong all the way down to death. But he did it on purpose. He did it for you and me. Consider that Jesus, perhaps, well, assuredly, actually, the least helpless person ever, the least helpless person ever, yeah. walk on water, feed thousands of people whenever he wanted to. He willingly became helpless to the point of death on a cross. That he might destroy death forever for you and me. It's that Jesus It's that Jesus who was at your right hand as your helper. He did all of that for you. He became helpless for you, suffered for you, and won victory over death for you. And he is your helper at your right side, friends. And if you're one of those that's enduring and suffering, I I sincerely believe, actually, that you're ahead of the rest of us. That's probably a small comfort to anybody in this room. But that you're ahead of the rest of us because you're learning the hard lesson of helplessness. You know, we're born helpless. We leave the world helpless. In between, we can delude ourselves into thinking we're not. Because the rest of us, we strive. We strive to never be helpless. We despise dependency. 
We want security, and, and like David, for at least a moment, we can appear to all the world and to ourselves that we are in control. That's certainly me. I hate being dependent. I hate it. Here's the good news for people like me and you, people who strive to never be helpless. This is the words of Robert Farrar Capon. You can find it in your bulletin in the front again. This uh, ex-Episcopal priest writes, In spite of all our fakery, Jesus' program remains firm. He saves losers, and only losers. He raises the dead, and only the dead. Hey, my my very successful striving friends, I'm glad you're here and that you're trying to conquer the world and learn new great things, and for goodness sake, please do so. Learn, conquer, excel, do it all for the glory of God and the good of others. That's great. But friends, especially speaking toward those, in the room, those of us in the room that are Christians, we, are, we find ourselves six days of the week in this particularly strange uh, thought quandary. On Sunday mornings, we come and we testify that there is no hope or salvation for us outside of the death of Jesus. That we are so needy that the Son of God had to take flesh and die for us. That's what we do on Sunday mornings. We as Christians, we come here and we say that, right? I am needy. I am helpless. If you don't live and die for me, Jesus, there's no hope for me. And then we leave here and for six days of the week, we live like we should never need help. Doesn't that strike you as the slightest bit strange? David is mercifully delivered. From folly, from his foolishness, from his pride and his consequences, he finds God to be close, near, and a helper. And then he gives words to it. He gives words to it that we all benefit from. And here at the end, we get to hear his humility. And he calls us to, to, to give voice to it as well. So let's hear that humility. And that's what we have here in Psalm 30. David's words from a humbled heart. And, and we see his heart has been humbled. And verse six is in verse six and seven, he's prideful, he's, he's assured, he's self-secure, um, he's boasting. I will never be moved. And by verses eight and nine, he's calling for mercy. And his argument in verses eight and nine are really interesting. His argument sort of runs like this. Lord, I've, I've thought about it here on my deathbed, and... And here's what I've got to offer. In, in my few remaining days, however long they may be, I have a good thing to offer. It's the only thing I have to offer. If you let me live, I will praise you. That's the best thing he has to This is the king. This is the king. And his conclusion is... If I die, I've got nothing to offer. If you, if you let me live, then the very best thing I can do is praise you. Let me live that I may live for you and praise you. And friends, this is the, the heart of someone who's been humbled. It's the heart of one that cries, be merciful to me. Help me, Lord. It's, it's hard to cry out. It's really hard to cry out for help. 
Who's good at asking for help? Raise your hand. If you think you're good at asking for help, raise your hand. Some of you are just being shy. There's at least one person here. Anyway, um, I have a humiliating example from my uh, teen years that I would like to share. This doesn't leave the room. Um, <laughs> so uh, I grew up in rural Virginia, which partly explains this really stupid thing I'm about to tell you about. Um, but there's really no great explanation. Uh, I was a, a young teenager, maybe 12, 13, 14, I don't know, when uh, in my rural Virginia home uh, in the backyard, I, I suddenly found myself uh, with, a, with a pickup truck on my foot, <laughs> like resting on my foot. I was stuck under a truck. Now, I can't tell you how it happened because I'm not quite sure. But I know, and I'm pretty sure, that you have to be pretty stupid to get a truck stuck on your foot. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I lived pretty rural, but we still had neighbors. And so here I was confronted with, you know, really uh, an unpleasant situation between a rock and a hard place. Uh, the rock being, there's a truck on my foot. The hard place being... I don't want to call attention to the fact that I have a truck stuck on my foot. And uh, I don't want especially alert the entire neighborhood that I'm an idiot. So I'm calling for help discreetly, <laughs> <laughs> quietly. I want people in my home, like, you know, 30 feet away through cinder block walls to, uh, to hear me, but no one else. And uh, so I, I cry quietly out of my desperation. It, 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 gets, it, it, it hurt more over time. I was wearing steel-toed boots, and I think over time they just gave more and more. And uh, over like 10 minutes or so, I, it eventually became just a desperate yell for help. I, I'm fairly confident that most of us don't want to cry out for help because we're embarrassed about being human, about being needy. We don't want to be seen as needy. Most of us won't get help until we absolutely have to. Some of us won't get help until someone has to drag us past the point of no return to get help, right? I'm fairly sure a lot of us are just embarrassed to be human. To be human. Because to be human is to be needy. But David calls for help. And he does so from a humbled heart. And we get to hear it. And here's what I want to encourage you by. You may think like the cry of a humble heart, as we hear it, is a pathetic yelp. You know, uh, a meek little whimper. It's, it's the victory song of the great loser. Help me. Um, it's actually much more varied and much more beautiful than that, actually. When you look at what David is giving voice to, we see, yes, a cry for help from the humbled heart. It is, at times, a gut-wrenching cry for mercy. Verse 8, he pleads for mercy. Be merciful to me. Help me. That's true. And we need to cry out that to the Lord, and sometimes to others. But there are other sounds as well, other uh, aspects of a humble heart's cry that are, that are different and varied. In verse 12, it is giving thanks to the Lord, giving thanks to him forever. 
humbled heart is one that gives thanksgiving to God. Thanksgiving slays pride. Also in verse 12, humbled heart sometimes sounds like a glorious song. When you're restored to glory, you, with your glory, sing his praise. That comes from a humbled heart. You sing the praise of the Lord who's been kind to you. And then there's another, another sound as well from a humbled heart. It's the sound of all those that are gathered. Because in verse 4, that's what David does. He calls everyone together. He gathers them and says, hey, we who share the same deliverer, we who share the same redeemer who brought us all up, let's praise him. It's not just you pathetically crying for help. It's us giving thanks. It's us singing with glory. It's us singing together. In verse 5, he seems to indicate, hey, we know what this is like. We, 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 we have all been delivered. We've all had times where we thought it was never going to end and joy comes in the morning. Out of that shared experience, let's give voice to the Lord. I, I didn't read it, but it's there in your, in your uh, bulletin. That's the occasion for the writing of this psalm. It's really interesting Uh, We're told that David wrote this at the dedication of the temple. It was written for the dedication of the temple. If if you know much about the Old Testament, you'll think, that's interesting. And if if you don't know much about it, you'll think, all right. It's really interesting because uh, David never saw the temple. He he didn't build it. God told him he couldn't. And uh, because of this, scholars have spilled lots and lots of ink over what exactly was going on here. This is what I find really, really interesting, and I think really great, that, that David, in this psalm, is being remarkably honest, right? He's being remarkably honest. And he's written a psalm that he or the other writers of the psalms got together and said, hey, you know what would be perfect? When we get the temple built for God's people, and we all come together, all of God's people, to dedicate the temple, let's... Let's sing that song, because this is a songbook, you know. Let's sing that song about the time that, that David was so foolish, so stupid, that he thought he did it all by himself. That he, his success was all his. Let's sing that song about how he almost died because of his foolishness. That's the perfect song to sing. Does that strike anybody as slightly ironic? No? Let's sing a song about a merciful redeemer who knows what it's like to deal with God's people who are constantly headstrong, heading in the wrong direction, and their pride thinking they can do it all by themselves. Let's sing that song. You see what's going on here, friends, is David knows what it's like to be us. And the Lord knows what it's like to be us. That every single day, people are going to be walking into that temple that are just like us, thinking, I can do this on my own. They know the inner traffic of our minds, that pride is a constant temptation, that we hate calling out for help, that we need mercy, but we don't want it. And they thought, let's, let's put this right at the beginning of everything, the dedication of the temple. David knows that, our, that by nature we are headlong and headstrong, heading in the wrong way. Here's my question. Do you know that about yourself? Do you know that about yourself, the way you think about your day, your career, your job, your studies. What is the song in your head? Is it the strained song of me, 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 try, try, try? Or is it the sweet song of mercy that gives thanks to God for all his great gifts to you 
and then strives to work hard for his glory and gives him thanks for delivering you. And then lastly, friends, I want to I encourage you based on this psalm. What, what Paul is giving, excuse me, David is giving us here is a gift. It's a reminder to us that we need to not only be aware of our pride and how we think about success and security, but also we need to give voice to it. It's a reminder that we have a great deliverer. One who was never, ever like us. Prideful. He was like us in his flesh because he became helpless to meet us at the bottom where we fell. He became helpless to meet us down here that he might deliver us. We have a great deliverer, Jesus, who became helpless for us to die and defeat death and bring us hopeless folks back to life. You get to praise him for that. But also this psalm, friends, is a gift to you because it, it, it makes you give voice to your need. To actually open your mouth and say, I need help. I'm not the Lord. I'm just a person. It's not all up to me. I need a helper. We are surrounded by a culture and ethos that says it's all up to you. Strive for success and security. You will insulate yourself from, from, from fear and suffering and death. And it's, it's simply not true. And it makes that, that narrative right there, it makes it so hard when everyone lives that way, when you're in need to actually speak up and say, I need help. Because everyone else seems to be just fine, rushing along, striving along. Friends, it's not true. We're all people. We all need help. And this psalm is a wonderful reminder that when we remember this, and give voice to it, we enable all those around us to be honest, to be honest about their need for help and to ask. I, th- I think it'd be really good for all of us right now at the beginning of a new year. I say that, but you're saying, it's September. I'm on the school calendar. Um, all of us right now at the beginning of a new year to just admit to ourselves, I am going to need help. I'm going to need divine assistance every day and I'm going to need help. And I want you to give voice to that. Because we need to know. We, the people of God, gathered together, we need to know that you need help. We need to know if we're going to care for you. We need to know if we're going to reach out and care for you and pray for you. We need the help so you won't suffer alone. And we need to know so that when you find joy in the morning, when God comes and rescues you and brings you up, that we can join with you in your praise. Let's pray together.